So this evening, um, I'm going to invite Leanne Thompson to come up and share with us. So would you make her feel welcome? Um, so I'm just going to hand over to you. Thank you. Yeah, that's what that's there for, yeah. For those of you who don't know, we were on a holiday, which was lovely, but I managed to get off the plane with a cold and the memories of the holiday, but the cold are still lingering. So <clears throat> if I have a little cough every now and then, I do apologise. So I have a few pages here. Don't be too distraught. It's large font, so. <laughs> and I still wear my glasses, so it's, it's not looking good. Um, I would like to just share some insights into my life and um, in putting together this little talk, um, talking with my girls and thinking, where do I go? Which tack do I take? How do I pull this all together? Um, I think it was with Liz we were talking and pretty much what came through very clearly in our conversation was God's provision for me in my life. So... I think throughout this, I'll come back to that often. And I found it was a really... Sorry, I should be in the microphone. I found it was a really great way of sharing a bit about my life, but also being able to show through different things that have happened um, and experiences God's provision for me. So that's my story. So I would just like to, um, as I said, share some insights when I have felt the provision of God, both in my life and during our time in ministry. Um, and personally. So um, growing up in a Christian family, it was a loving Christian family. We lived a Christian life, which was pretty much for me not a hard thing to do. I could even, no, I can't. All my weekends, it was worth a try. All my weekends were spent hanging out with my church friends and participating in youth group and church-related activities or camps. I had a great time. I had a really great time. My greatest challenge, though, through the week or during my school years was when I would get to school on a Monday morning. Myself and my school friends would discuss our weekends and I would come to school full of the joys of the weekend on a high from my weekend. You know, that whole mountaintop thing. I would arrive at school Monday morning, probably a little tired, but I certainly had that feeling. The conversation then would turn to all the escapades of my friends and whatever disco they had discovered. So that clearly tells you how old I am because disco's featured in our life when we were younger. And more importantly, who they'd met on the dance floor to the strains of, I don't know, Staying Alive, MacArthur Park or something, very 70s. <laughs> there were gales of laughter together as we would just dissect the events of the weekend and the interesting types who featured. Then they'd ask about my weekend and suddenly... I felt I couldn't share my own great weekend experience as I was a bit worried that they wouldn't get it and it would probably fall a bit flat. So I'd share a bit of a version about my activities and some of the characters involved but nothing of a terribly deep spiritual nature. And it felt weird that I wasn't comfortable to share my experiences and that I was so unsure of their reactions. I clearly needed to mature in my faith. Strangely, we still remain great mates to this day and now they ask me all about church and they ask me about um, the things that we do at church and it's a really lovely sharing opportunity but that took a fair bit of maturing on my part, I think. So moving on, after I left school, I embarked on my first overseas trip <clears throat> back in 1980. 
I participated in the first International Christian Youth Conference in Truro in Cornwall with um, the World Methodist Evangelism under the leadership of Sir Alan Walker, who was the first World Director of World Methodist Evangelism. And it was a great conference. We camped, which was lovely, and it was an amazing experience. And during that time, it was there that I discovered, whilst rubbing shoulders with other young adults from around the globe, the relevance of my faith in my adult life and how to actually have a real relationship with Jesus in my daily life. So fast forward five years after that, and I met up again with Greg, who is my husband. And I say again because Greg's dad was the minister at our church while I was growing up. And Greg, of course, was in the youth group and usually part of all our social activities. So we knew each other well. And I have to say, to honour Greg's dad, he was just the most amazing pastor. The richness and the fun and the life and the relevance of our faith in our daily life, you couldn't have found a better person to bring that to all our young ears and experiences. We were like sponges and he just brought all of God's love and the, the coolness, the excitement of being a Christian alive. And it was just a really, really valuable experience and um, something that many years later I have really, really sort of very, um, what's the word? fresh just in my memory and very often Greg and I will talk back about something about youth group the memories are there and really alive so by the time Greg and I met each other again he'd commenced training at theology college and he was going to enter the ministry with the uniting church so the Methodist church had become the uniting church by that stage during our three years there we got to know other students and their partners And I learned very quickly that God calls people from all walks of life to his ministry. And I recall one of his college pals, a lovely lady, and she was avidly into Star Trek. So she was training to be a minister and also had another passionate hobby, making a mean home brew. According to one account, the janitor tried Lena's home brew once and promptly fell down the stairs. So my eyes were open to see that God sees the potential in all of us, somewhere or other. Greg completed his training and then came the exciting time when the college seniority placed all the students into varying parishes, according to the preferences of the students. Some chose to remain in the city, others were happy to go regional, and others were happy to go rural. I bet you can guess what, God, what Greg chose. Actually, it was definitely God and Greg together. Well, he chose the great rural adventure. I recall being so excited to come home from work to learn where we were going to go to change the world, as we thought we would do. And so it was revealed. Greg said he was happy to go rural. Fine. Little did I know how rural. Well, we were off to Lake Kajaligo. And you may ask, where on earth is Lake Kajaligo? A small rural town in the central west of New South Wales it is. And back in 1986, there was a population of about 1,700, both in the township and the surrounding area. We uh, were, as the crow flies, the last town between us and Cobar, Broken Hill. So it was pretty remote. Um, It was a good 90 to 100 k from the next town. So we were plonked in this little village. And I remember the night we arrived at 11 o'clock at night and it was 45 degrees in January and I nearly died. And this is completely not on my script, but I will just tell you the very first night we're lying in bed in our lovely house that had mustard carpet, orange curtains, that net, the nice net, orange net curtains. We're lying in bed, trying to sleep in this 45 degree 
and we got a rock in the window. So that was welcome to Lake Jellico. Uh, that's all right. Things definitely improved after that. So we ministered there for about three years, primarily to farming families and varying blow-ins like ourselves, teachers, police officers and ambulance officers, etc. Of course, both of us straight from the city didn't have a clue about country life, much less a large wheat farming community who spent a great deal of time looking skywards and discussing the hopeful possibility or not, depending on uh, the time of the year, if harvest was due or other, of rain. <clears throat> a more resilient, practical, caring for each other community was very hard to find. From running the only church youth group in town, so the Uniting Church ran the, the youth group and the Baptists ran the Sunday school. And it was very cute because all the kids, the Christian kids, would come to our, Sunday, our youth group and then on Sunday morning they'd all troop off to the Baptist regardless of what denomination they actually were. And then later on in our time there, the Anglicans ran like a sort of Pentecostal evening service. So we all had a bit of something. And it was really a great time of closeness. So the other things we would do, we hosted the annual debutante ball. I remember cooking this great lump of steak to make a casserole for feeding the crowds attending the Lake Cajeligo show. I had no idea what I was doing on that experience. Uh, we did lots of things to try and remain relevant an integral part of the community and to be um, a very clear face for the community to, to share their life with. I remember another experience, we were doing a pastoral visit and Greg was visiting um, with one of our old timers. He lived out of town and the experience was, in my mind's eye, I can see Greg standing there in uh, the lake uh, with his arms around Ted Ted, sorry, was in the dam with his arms around Ted, who has his arms around a sheep. Greg's trying to pull Ted out of the dam. Ted's trying to pull the sheep out of the dam. I'm like six months pregnant, unable to do a thing. And that was, that was farming life. A little while later, Ted's rustling around in his dining room table. He's lost something. What have you lost, Ted? He lost a $35,000 check. Oh, thank goodness it was found. So many and varying experiences. We hosted Bev and Peter T, who visited us to assist with prayer and ministry one time. And that was very, very special. There were lots of stories. Um, time doesn't permit. But um, many, many stories we have of the impact of sharing daily life with these very down-to-earth, lovely people was really great. One thing I do recall is when we transitioned from the manual telephone exchange to the automatic telephone exchange. Lake Cajelago was the last place in Australia to switch over to automatic from manual. So to enable to do that, because you used to just go and pick up the phone and wait and, you know, Esme at the switch would answer. We had to have classes so we, everybody could learn how to use the automatic phone. And there was a little sort of checklist how to do it except the one dear lady her name was Elwyn and she'd just stand there and she'd pick up the phone and wait <laughs> wait and well there was no Esme anymore to put her through to wherever she would want so we all had extensions and you would always know if somebody was listening in because you could either hear them breathing or the clicking of the phone in and out <laughs> or a cough and so then if I was talking to my mum or somebody I'd say I'll write you a letter that was the only other option back then so it was all good fun I left my job in the bank um, in Sydney when we moved to Lake Cajeligo and during that time there I had begun to search for my place in the community. When I, I was, had two of our girls there, Elizabeth and our Sophie, were, were born while we were there. 
Um, and I really just wasn't sure where my place was and my my ministry opportunity alongside Greg. It came in the form of a job at our local school and it was a way to impact a small but very worthy group in our community. And I really believe this was God's provision to me as I'm not a trained teacher. But that wasn't what the school was looking for. They had a great team of teachers and they had received funding to develop a program to reach out and work alongside the educators with a small group of at-risk children. At Lake, we still had an Aboriginal mission about 15 kilometres out of town and the children who lived there attended the central school. The school bus would pick them up and transport those who would be attending, those who weren't running around everywhere else, um, into school every morning. So my role was that of an integration teacher and I taught these children three or four mornings a week some basic life skills. For example, we were learning about money um, and I took them on a little excursion. And back then, I just took them on the excursion. There was no paperwork, there was no notes, there was all no risk assessments, no anything. We just went on an excursion, we just went. And so we went down to the local shops and we went to, there was two supermarkets in town, the top supermarket and the bottom supermarket, very creatively named. So we went to the bottom supermarket and so we were walking in and out and I was just basically showing them a little bit about money and change and the fruit was this much and if you paid this much, blah, blah, blah. And I caught one little girl, her name was Patricia and um, she was just looking longingly at the checkout girl and, and I said, Patricia, what are you doing? And she said... When I grow up, that's what I want to be. And I thought, oh, my word, you could be prime minister. You could be, I don't know, you could be a flight attendant. You could be anything, but you really want to be a checkout operator in my mind, which was not very gracious of me. But I said to her, well, Patricia, I can see that's what you really want. And if you really try hard at school and you really try and come to school every day and learn your lessons, then you know what? You might get to be checkout operator one day. So I don't know what happened to her. I don't know whether she's working in the, in the checkout there at the bottom supermarket or not anymore. But it was a very, very interesting experience. And I thought the dreams of youth and I, I hope maybe she got to work in her dream job at some stage. We had another young student who was scheduled to progress into year six the next year. All he could write was his name, Horace. And that was, I found a great sadness. Another little fellow would arrive at school in a bit of a smelly mess. His mum had left home to go to a funeral at Brewarana and she'd not returned. And he was staying with an auntie. And the little boy had had an accident in his pants as he wasn't properly toilet trained and he was five. So he was obviously, we would many morning whisk him off to the shower and get him freshly showered and dressed to start his day. Many mornings saw me sourcing toast and Vegemite from the school canteen for a more substantial than was last night's tea, probably sweet biscuits. I'll probably never know what happened to my little group. However, I believe my time with them was all about seed sowing, life skills, basic tools for learning, someone to take an interest in them and a reason to hope for the future. And when I think of my motley little gang, I give thanks that they came into my life and I do send up a prayer for them. And where they're at right now. From Lake Cajelico, we literally had our sea change. Greg was called to minister in Coffs Harbour. Can you believe it? Well, Gulga, to be exact. And we were there for five years. And our youngest, Emily, was born during that time. We again ministered to both the beautiful and the unusual in our community. And during those years, I founded and I ran a Christian playgroup. 
beneficial to both toddlers and mums, not to mention my own three preschoolers. I had some beautiful conversations with other mums, sharing our stories and parenting experiences as we will encourage one another. During this time, Greg also officiated at a number of weddings at the varying resorts up and down the coast, even the racetrack. It was great to know God is in the midst of a marriage ceremony, even on the race course. There were many opportunities to share with the people we met about God's love and how they too can know his love in their life. And in 1996, we were called to the city, to Pennant Hills Uniting Church in Sydney. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, I commenced a play group and I also ran the youth group with Greg. And I enjoyed some beautiful friendships with other mums, both at church and at the local school, which was not always easy to achieve in ministry. During our time at Pennant Hills, I commenced working in the retirement village next door. I believe this was God's provision into my future work, as this was the beginning of my personal ministry with seniors. I feel I have a connection with older people. I really believe that God has given that to me. And my heart with seniors is to ensure that they, and me not in the not-too-distant future, continue to feel relevant, valued and cherished in our society. Because too often I see and hear from seniors that they don't feel they have anything to contribute to life and worry that they don't even feel relevant in their own families. I really hate that. I really hurt for those people. And I know it's not the case with every person, but no one should feel that way. And I really believe that God has provided me with a real and practical way in my work to connect with our elderly, as during my mornings at the retirement village in Sydney, we'd spend lots of hours talking and sharing together. It was also during our time at Pennant Hills that I began to feel some pain in my right hip, just a niggling at first, gradually becoming more uncomfortable as the day would wear on. A bit tricky when you've got three young girls to look after and drive here and there. I had x-rays and um, the result was some osteoporosis resulting from being born with shallow hip sockets is what I apparently had been born with. So I carried on and lived with the symptoms for a number of years. I was also working in the laundry part of the retirement village which involved a lot of bending and lifting of heavy sheets and towels in and out of the industrial washer and dryers. In uh, 2002, Greg resigned from the Uniting Church and we moved to Canberra. It was a difficult move for me personally as I'm very close to my family in Sydney and after living in rural areas for a number of years, we had all finally begun to live near each other and I loved and enjoyed the regular interaction we had together. But again, in the, great mid in the midst of my great sadness at living, leaving the family and also my friends, God provided. He provided a hope for my future life in Canberra. And it came from the retirement village manager where I had been working in Sydney in the form of a name to contact when we moved to Canberra with the possibility of some work. So a month after we arrived, I really, again, clearly felt God's provision in this situation. Money was very tight. And after settling our girls into school, I decided it was time to find some work. So I decided to contact the name that my old boss had given me. I did. However, unfortunately, at the time, she didn't have any work for me. So I left and I continued to pray for the open door to a way to earn some income. Didn't take long because the very next day I received a call from a stranger. Turns out she was the manager of another one of the retirement villages in the organisation known as Goodwin Aged Care Services. 
she asked if I would like to come in and have a chat with her. Well, with nothing to lose and a hopeful heart, I met with her and about an hour later I had a part-time job offer for me to think about and get back to her if I wanted it. Can I say that was such provision and it was such a blessing. And none of this carry on with um, great long interviews and reference checks and all that sort of thing back in the good old days. It was a bit of a simple process and I was very, very grateful for that. So Greg and I discussed it, we prayed about it and we mostly prayed around the logistics of me working and juggling school pickups and involvement with the girls' classes and things like that. But we thought we could do it. So I took the job and as some of you already know, 16 years later, I'm still working for Goodwin and I love my job. For the first time since we moved, I felt a sense of hope that I might find a way to begin to fit into this new town and find my place. But money was incredibly tight and neither Greg nor myself were making really enough income to cover our expenses and save for a home. We'd lived in church manses all our life, all our ministry, and uh, we didn't have our own home. And it was during that time God gave me a verse, and I'm sure you all know it really well. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, from Jeremiah 29, 11. I remember often whilst I was driving the residence of the hostel on an outing, saying that verse over and over and praying, or at least I was doing that when I wasn't getting very lost and doing laps around the numerous Canberra roundabouts. I had an interesting time there. Many scenic drives were a lot more scenic than I'd planned them to be. <laughs> Great opportunity for lots of prayer and it may have been a bit, please Lord, get us back before lunchtime. So my hips unfortunately continued to cause some pain and about three years after that I was at the point where I really couldn't walk from Kmart to Target down at the Hyperdome or whatever it's called now without pain. I developed a bit of a gait to try and manage the pain and work was becoming difficult. So to cut a long story short I had my first hip replacement at 45 years old. The following year uh, I had the second one and all went well for a few years. Then the results of, and I would have annual blood tests. One year the results of my annual blood test showed I had developed extreme levels of cobalt and chromium in my blood and the prosthesis had worn, causing tiny particles of titanium to find their way into my bloodstream. The only treatment was a revision hip replacement of the affected hip. Mm -mm. Back into hospital and the offending prosthesis was removed and a new hip put in with considerable carpentry for any of you who know anything about hip surgery. All went well until sure enough at another blood test, annual blood test and I'm going to stop here and say I can choose to see God's provision in this situation as without these annual blood tests I would never have known I had problems until probably it was too late and I may not be walking. So that's what I choose to see in this. So at this blood test, I was very unimpressed to learn that um, the other hip needed to be replaced. And the same problem had happened. To say I was unimpressed by this situation was an understatement. I think I used the entire box of tissues at the surgery. So great was my disappointment and dismay to go through this again. I felt that four hip replacements was really not fair. I think probably it's the lying on your back in bed without moving every night for six weeks that I found the hardest to bear. I think others can relate to how I'm feeling. And I must confess I'm not a very patient patient, so 
a lot of all my loved ones around me had a fairly trying six weeks as well, I suspect. Anyway, we moved through all of that and all went well with my recovery and very good. Until during December 2014, I managed to scratch myself on my chest. I got a scratch on my chest, probably from a rose bush, quite likely from our cat. I'm not really sure who was the most guilty party, but I do suspect the cat. I recall the scratch being a bit red and sore for a while, but it gradually improved and I didn't think anything further of the injury. That was until the morning of the 2nd of January 2015 when the pain in my left hip was so bad I couldn't move. I couldn't get out of bed. I simply couldn't move. In desperation, Greg called the ambulance and I went to hospital where I stayed for two weeks. While firstly I was hooked up to some serious pain relief, thank goodness, while a multitude of tests were done to determine what was going on. Finally, a diagnosis of an infected psoas muscle which sits next to the prosthetic hip um, was diagnosed. Bugs love prosthetic joints and attach themselves very happily and tenaciously and they are very hard to eradicate once present. So I received, well, I had the thing drained and then I received an IV antibiotics and I left hospital with more IV antibiotics via one of those lovely pick lines which go into your arm and into your sort of near your heart and it continues to give you IV antibiotics when you're at home which is a really great thing. I had more antibiotics and then I had some tablets and I finished the medications and I got on with life about six weeks or so after all this happened. Or so I thought I would do. My body thought differently. As a day and a half after finishing the final dose of my antibiotic course, the pain in my hip returned. And we were on holiday at the time in Queensland staying with Greg's sister and her husband. I didn't realise the infection had returned at this time. I could still walk painfully, but I could walk. I just felt really unwell and feverish. And again, to cut a long story short, I fainted at a train station in Inner Brisbane and found myself in an ambulance on the way to hospital. At least this time we could inform the staff of my history, so diagnosis was much quicker and I left hospital a few hours later with a fresh course of tablets, antibiotics to take. Trouble was, they did no good at all. And a couple of days later, I continued to feel unwell and was struggling to walk. And again, I'm going to tell you of how I felt God's provision for me in this situation. We have friends who were living in the Sunshine Coast at the time. And the husband of our friends was a nurse. He had a pair of crutches at their home. I didn't ask how come. I was just very grateful so that I could have them to enable me to get around. So that's how I managed to stagger around during the next few days while Greg and I spent our holiday at Caloundra doing the rounds of doctors, x-rays and blood tests. I managed to contact Canberra Hospital and speak with the infectious diseases consultant I was under and with my sense of feeling so unwell increasing, uh, she directed me to catch the first plane back to Canberra to have the infection drained and recommence treatment. So we bought plane tickets and our friends drove us to Brisbane Airport. Unfortunately, while waiting to board the plane, I felt unwell and I fainted. The flight attendants called the ambulance and again I found myself en route to hospital in Brisbane. I had the infection drained again and remained there while a plan was discussed. And I really strongly feel God's provision for me in this next part of all of this. The orthopaedic team in Brisbane Hospital wanted to operate right then and there and remove all the infection. That's it, the only thing they're wanting to do. And that I would remain in Brisbane for six months or more before I could travel. What? And I had put in, except that when I did a test run of this talk with Sophie, she said, take it out, it's all too much detail. But the issue is, 
She was quite honest with her feedback, but due to um, having the joint, the infected joint removed and then you have to have a temporary one put in with antibiotic and then you have to have that one removed and then you have to heal from it all. It's a bit of a process, hence it's a six months before you really would be in a position to probably walk again and especially flying. So in a bit of a nutshell, that was the reason. I could not get my head around all of this and all I wanted to do was go home to my own surgeon who I have absolute trust in. Well, they were not keen for this to happen. So there was many calls between the orthopaedic teams in Brisbane and TCH and the continuing example of God's provision, one of the orthopaedics in Brisbane actually went to uni with one of the orthopaedic consultants in Canberra. So that seemed to change things a little, this connection they had. Thank you, God. Thank you. And amazingly, my desire to go home was allowed, but only within a very tight window of a few hours between IV doses of antibiotic. So my beautiful Elizabeth flew up and together we flew back to Canberra in between um, doses of antibiotic. I couldn't have made the trip without her. God gave her the strength that she needed and the right words to help me stay calm during the flight. Did I mention that I still had the drain bag attached to my hip? Not the best flying accessory. Very attractive. Thank goodness for track pants. We made our way back to Canberra uneventfully and the lovely Peter T and Sophie were waiting at the airport to whisk me straight to TCH. Where was Greg in all this, you may ask? Well, after taking us to the airport for the second time, he then had to get in the car and commence the long drive back to Canberra with all our gear and our car and everything. So I remained in hospital again for a week or so under the care of both infectious diseases and my orthopaedic professor while they tussled to and fro discussing the best plan for me. Excuse me. God again provided for me. While I was in hospital, a lovely lady popped ahead in my room and announced she was a chaplain. And would I like to speak to her at all? Well, I actually didn't feel like talking with a stranger as I was very blessed to have the care and the love and the prayers of obviously my family and Peter and Judy and, and Catherine and, and my other dear friends. And I didn't really feel I needed to. But before she left, she offered me a small card with the picture of a rose on it and a Bible verse. Well, you can guess what verse it was. It was my Jeremiah 29, 11. And I just was so grateful to receive that little card. Greg and I prayed constantly that I would not have to have the washout surgery, as it's charmingly called. After about a week or so, my professor came and perched on my bed to have a chat. I would say my heart was pounding with nerves, wondering what was he going to say. But in reality... Whilst I was nervous, I also felt a calm and a sense of, it's going to be okay. So the outcome, hold off surgery for the foreseeable future, more antibiotics, IV, home again with my old friend, the pick line for another six weeks, and then more oral antibiotics indefinitely. Well, I was very happy. I was grateful and I assured my professor that I would be a very diligent patient and not miss a day of medication. So you may wonder about my job. As I had used all my sick leave, etc., I really needed to go back to work again. And also, I think I needed the distraction. I called work, and you probably know what I'm going to say. I really felt God's provision again in this. Work did what was pretty much the unthinkable. They're very risk adverse with people being at, at work unless they can fully undertake their roles. Goodwin let me come back to work with my pick line in, under my clothes so you would never know, at a time that suited me in with my hospital in the home visits and I couldn't even drive and I work in the community and my job was driving around. So I 
felt blessed beyond belief that they did that for me and they just left me in peace to get on with my job and I must say my colleagues were amazing. They would give me lifts to meetings and I pretty much undertook 90% of my normal job. I really felt like I'd rejoin the human race again. So I continued to do well and I daily thank God for his provision in my life in so many ways over so many years. I know he will continue to provide for me according to his plan for my life and for each of my family. I have my verse with me in my Bible and I often reflect on the richness and the hope um, in those promises from God on that little card. And I absolutely trust him to continue to answer my prayers and provide. Thank you, everybody.